Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's lift our hands and just honor God yet again. Oh, what a wonderful God he is. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Lord. Amen. Now, Father, we thank you again for this time of fellowship. Thank you for the activities that gone on earlier today. Thank you for the influence of your spirit through them. We ask that in this session that you take us further in your light and let there be clarity and absolute light in all that will be said, shared, and understood. There's no error in this atmosphere. There's no confusion. Neither is there any contradiction. Together, as a church, we behold Jesus Christ, your son, even as he sees us in him. He's glorified, even as we're edified. Amen. Praise the Lord. Before you sit down again, kindly appreciate uh, my friend, my pastor, Gilbert, say his wife and everyone. And I, I must commend um, the entire, you know, walkers of this church or beautiful atmosphere that we have. It takes a good team to have a good leader. As it takes a good leader to have a good team. So I want to commend you. Please, can you clap for yourselves and clap for all the workers of this church? Thank you so much. Have your seat. Praise the Lord. Matthew's Gospel and 28. We'll uh, continue from the things we have been saying. And good enough today, I know from the arrangement the pastor has made with us, we would go on some practical things in the um, area of ministry. Um, ministry is learned by precept and by example as well, uh, which means that you learn ministry, discipleship, by teaching and also by example. I say it often when I teach in Bible schools or I talk to ministers that it's, it's good to uh, come to the classes and learn it and take notes. But uh, it must, it only becomes as effective when you're able to put it to practice. It's something that you do. So Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven is given to me in heaven and earth. And he says, Go ye therefore, verse 19, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them, verse 19, in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost. That's what teach there. Then 20, teaching them to observe what things have commanded you and learn with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Now, uh, notice the word nations. We mentioned that earlier. That must be uh, Wednesday and also Thursday and yesterday. That the word nations, ethnos, uh, is not the way we call countries today. Uh, we call countries Nigeria, Ghana, Liberia, Guinea, and that's not the way it's said. Of course, that's also a nation, but a nation is what uh, a, people, a people bound by history, tradition, behavior, and culture. And so we have that mandate uh, to have, and I teach it like this, that the body of Christ is uh, born by God to be multi-ethnic, okay? Which means you, you should avoid um, um, having a church filled with Ashanti people. hope I'm right. Okay. Uh, you should avoid in Nigeria a church filled with Yoruba people. That defeats the essence of the church, the ecclesia of God, the, the doctrine of the ecclesia of God, which is what we call the church. I think the Hebrew has the word kwalal, so the ecclesia is a people called from everywhere. So it's, it's a multi-ethnic, non-gender based, all right, statusless union of people. Multi-ethnic, you see that even what they call United Nations fails. It fails at the fact they have the G7, <laughs> you know, class, G20. 
and G7 are the top guys. There's G20, then there's the G1. G1 is United States of America. Then G1 has some people fighting it like Russia. And imagine China. And it's about dominance. You get it? So they, they, they'll fail at it. I remember I had this conversation with my daughter, and she, she has a passion for, you know, just talked about human rights generally. And she was, you know, talking to me about how, you know, slave trade, slavery, um, gender discrimination. There was one particular one, the one that got her attention was a George Floyd murder, uh, Blacks Lives Matter. So she even asked me to watch one particular documentary uh, about the uh, Seventh Amendment, uh, a movie like that. So I said, I'll see it. They had the conversation. So she was literally about, you know, and she went on and on. She had loved Martin Luther King somehow along the line. So I said to her, I said, well, I, I get your passion. I was just like you at your age because uh, one of my nicknames as a younger boy was radical because I used to lead revolts, okay? So I said, I know what you feel. I know how you feel, but it, it, the, the solution remains the gospel. She said she knows. She now added something interestingly. She said the gospel, when it is properly explained, you know, because why she said that was uh, she also has the information that uh, slave trade was backed up by the Bible. Appetite was backed. I mean, how do you confront your girl? Uh, you're a pastor, and she says, well, what you preach seems to put people in bondage. You know, you, you, you must take time and explain. In fact, she's one of the reviewers of our latest book, The Woman I Know. <laughs> she said, I'm, when I told her I was going to write, she said, I'm interested in reading it. Because the, the idea is that it's the Bible that inspires it one way or the other. And some denominations have not helped us either. Um, they, they talk, the woman cannot lead worship, she cannot lead the church, she can't teach, she can't do this, but she can lead choruses. And she can serve the men of God. You know, and all of that. So all those kind of things uh, are questions you might have to answer from your children. You get it? Because they can grow up just thinking, oh, this is a funny religion. And they get to class, and she's wondering, why would God ask me uh, not to aspire for what this guy aspires for? I'm better than him in the class. And even when it comes to, you know, uh, oratories, oratory, we have quite some women way better than men. When it comes to athletics, I mean, how many of you can run 10.47? I'm sure many people here is 15.5, 100 meters. Do you understand? But there are, there are women that rule 10.49, 10.6. When it comes to boxing, there are some women that can, many women that can punch you and then will need to lay hands on you to come back to life. And we have many more, uh, you know. So it's really, there's no basis for it. And that's why we put out the book, The Woman I Know. And we put that argument and proposal there and didn't try to defend God, just explain the Bible properly so that you don't use the Bible to support your, pre, uh, your primordial sentiments. Okay, so, you know, uh, at the back of that, you, like I said earlier, that the church, therefore, must never reflect your culture. It must never reflect your culture. It, it doesn't, it, it's not supposed to oppose your culture, but it must never reflect your culture. Okay, but where your culture reflects the gospel, you adopt it. I'll give you an instance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, Paul, you know, uh, started by saying that this is the instructions and the ordinance I delivered unto them. He said the head of every uh, woman is a man, the head of every man is, is, is Christ, the head of Christ is God. He says, and therefore, 
uh, a man uh, a man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and the woman who prophesies her head uncovered dishonors her head, uh, and he went all that and all that. And he went on, then talked about the covering of the hair, which is uh, and the uh, opening of the hair. There are two words. That there's the word parabolean. Parabolean means to put on. Akatakalupto means to take away. So um, now in Corinth, they understood what he was talking about because in Corinth, the use of the cloth on the hair, uh, that's historically speaking, was meant to show honor to your husband. Okay, so he said that. And then he went into the argument of, you know, yeah, and all that. We have that uh, stuff in some of our books. And uh, so he got to that point, which means that he saw a cultural practice that brought in honor. Okay, uh, for example, in my culture, in Yoruba, I'm a Yoruba, I'm a Yebu boy, uh, a Yebu Yoruba person from Nigeria. Uh, and uh, I, I, we have a culture. My father was even a king before he passed him. So we have some traditional things that we do. If you see an elderly person, uh, if a man, uh, you prostrate. You know, uh, of course, we grew up to do, do, do it like this. You know, rather than prostrate, you just say, hello, dad. So one time my father came to my school, and I was a prefect. And the kind of prefect I was was I was a, quite a powerful prefect uh, because I headed the hostel. I was head of many things. So when he came... Now, he, he, was a, he, he was an old boy of the same school, an alumnus of the school. He was even the announced master in the school. So when he came, he said, oh, good morning. So I, you know, my junior boys were there, so I did like this. He said, what are you looking for? So I did like this. He said, what's wrong with your legs? So I did like this. He said, are you trying to pick something? Till I went flat. He said, I hope something is not wrong with you. <laughs> how would you be, is that how to prostrate? You know, that's culture, Okay. And um, no, some other cultures don't have that. Even Nigeria, they just maybe just bow. Some can just do like this, and that's honor. So it, it's not the same everywhere. So when, when Paul got a hold of it, women would go on your knees and, you know, they kneel down and stuff like that. So when, when Paul saw that, he said he knew that this was Corinth. Corinth was a, 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 a prominent nation or city, sorry, known for promiscuity, known for, you know, they, they called them the headquarters of everything. Uh, so sometimes they can nickname you and say, oh, that guy is a Corinthian. Not necessarily because you're a Corinthian, but because, oh, God, you got all the vices. Uh, the, the advice of homosexuality was prevalent in there. They had idol worship. They had sex, perversion of sex. They had uh, people who had people who were not their husbands as well. You know, they had all of that. They had, um, kind of a, and it was quite a commercially rich region. So when they say you are a Corinthian brother, it means your name is not in the book of life. So that was a town, but he knew there was a culture that showed honor. So Paul says, uh, therefore, a woman ought to have her head covered because of honor to her husband. But then he said, if any be contentious, we have no such customs, neither the churches of God, which means it's not a custom of the church, okay? It is a custom of the people. But the instruction to honor your husband is a custom of the church. So which means the issue really was showing respect to your husband. Now that, that could be done in different ways depending on where you are. So which implies that even though we're not meant to absorb a culture, but we're a culture, okay, uh, projects honor. I'm not talking about human worship but projects honor, you know, and respect. 
we could use that culture uh, without necessarily being cultural about it. Who's following what I'm saying here? So the church is multi-ethnic, all right, which means that we mustn't be found also a church or a ministry that's elitist. Elitist. What do I mean by elitist? Elitist will mean that um, we only make provisions for those who have cars, for example. And we look at Accra and we find out that maybe just 20% of the citizens of Accra have cars, but your church only provides for those who have cars. So we don't try to think about a bus system that brings people to church because we are elitist in our thinking. Now, that, that defeats the model of the church. Okay? Now, I'm saying this because I'm laying a foundation yet again for the kind of community-based ministry that you must do. In every community you get to, you must do your best to have as many ethnic groups now. When I say ethnic groups, I'm not just talking about language. As many groups, as many nations represented in there. And so therefore, as a church, for example, the Saints Community Church, we began to have such ministry. Such ministry. I grew up, and I'm grateful to God, uh, I, I, I started ministry as a missionary, so I really understand that part, being to places where they didn't speak English at all or any language I understood. So, and there was no interpreter. You know, so I, I knew that. So I, I, I grew up that way. I grew up preaching in crusades in native language. I grew up going for evangelism, doing that. So uh, it's a background I have, but some people don't have that. So what we have done as a church is to retrain people so that at least learn to speak your local language. God is not English. Okay? And neither is he American. Okay? Neither is his favorite station, TBN. Can I have an amen? Okay, so you must have a multi-ethnic thinking. Can your church ministry accommodate boys and girls, men and women who don't belong to your status. Let's, let's assume, I mean, who are not as literate as you are. The moment we only provide for those who have that level of literacy, we are changing the complexion of the church. In fact, church history has it that a good number, where Jesus came in the four Gospels, barely 1% of the entire city of Jerusalem were rich. That means they were not even one to, up to 1%. So in that time when you say the rich, you knew who they were. Okay? And let me add something important. Neither did the coming of Jesus change the economy of the city. That's important for those who have the economic uh, anointing. They're probably better than Jesus. So the, but the point was, at the feet of Jesus, everybody found space. The brotherhood was able to see the wealthy and the illiterate call themselves brothers. That, that's something that never used to happen. Moses couldn't accomplish it. So that's the significance, for example. So I'm moving from multi-ethnic to ensure that your church is not... Now, I'm not saying that your services have to be interpreted. Okay, but we must therefore start thinking, for example, uh, if you're in a place like Lagos or you're in Accra here and it's discovered that 90% don't speak English, 
And then you as a church, you are only English speaking. That means you have cut off 90% of those you are told to reach. Let me see if you understand what I'm talking about. So you ask us, are thinking, how do we get across to that set of people? Very good. So one of the things we can do very easily is to train people who are schooled in the 90% language, who also speak very good English, train them to be able to communicate the gospel in their own language. That's very critical. So multi-ethnic, then statusless church. Statusless. And when you see people speak of things, sometimes when I see preachers talk, and I had to also change myself. I must mention this. I found out, for example, that in my earlier years in teaching, I'm still very early in ministry, many illustrations I used to use and examples were too elitist. You know, I'll talk about, and you know, all those big, big testimonies you saw, you begin to, and you know, a preacher must never appear like that. Many people struggle to know that. Paul came from a very influential background. But you will not see the hint of it in his stories. You see the hint of it in his language, in the sense of he's elitist, in the sense of, I mean, he's quite a, uh, a highly cerebral fellow, just like Moses. Moses, even though he was born, you know, as a Jew, but you notice that he was raised up in a wealthy place. He was raised up and he had the sense of entitlement and all that, but one of the things he did to answer the call to ministry was to esteem the reproaches of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Which means that even though he's educated, like I said the other day, he was able to use the knowledge of Egypt well, but then he dropped the status. So which means that we must have, let's start again, a, a, a multi-ethnic multi-ethnic approach to ministry. Very good. Then a statusless. Now, whether you like it or not, we all belong to, we all have different status. Going by, can, can I be free, Pastor? Going by the kind of cars that we drive. I know about that. I know how people see things like that. Remember, I came to hold a meeting in Pastor Somi's church. He wasn't the host of the meeting, but they used his church in 2007. Now, that was around, I think, August or so. I just bought a brand new car. And in Lagos, when that car came out in 2007, it was 2007 model, and it got to Nigeria in June, and I bought it in June. Okay? I remember I was top 10 or so, or 12, that got it in Lagos. So, as soon as we got to that community, I came out of the car to come and preach in. People were already around the car. Now, I'm not talking about uh, an hamlet. I'm talking about Lagos. They're around the car and they were saying, wow. Oh, my God. You know, and we are to reach those people. In fact, there was one fellow like that. He used to discard what we used to preach. So we went for one short fellowship meeting among believers, and we took another, uh, that, that same car, just that same month or so. As he saw the car, the guy said, who brought this car? He said, he's that pastor. He's the one. He said, oh my God. Listen carefully. This, that means what he's preaching works. <laughs> he said it. 
Now, if you are not smart, you will want to keep pushing that narrative as what your ministry is. And you will fail because you will have a ministry that will end up in vanity. People will clap for you, but God is pissed off. So, I had to watch my kind of illustrations. My kind of, um, remember a preacher was trying to tell me about money. I smiled. And I gave him a hint of something that I had done. And he paused on the phone and he changed the line of the story. You know, and I think that's how people are. So you have that temptation to push an elitist story. And if you're not careful, if you came from a background, you know, uh, in Yorubas, we call it atakpata, it's not a Greek word. It means to rise from the ground floor, uh-huh, up. You are likely going to be fighting a complex all the days of your life. You want to show people that your family can succeed. So when you get into ministry, you say, huh, they thought we were going nowhere. They thought we were nobody. Look at it today. Yesterday, I was with the president of the world. Two days after, me and the devil went to see the president of America. And you know, begin to say things like that. And that can have a problem because you, it will reflect in your theology and the kind of people that you attract in your church. And don't forget, the large population of those in your nation, in the world, are poor. I didn't say a part of I said a large population are poor. So statusless will mean, I'm not asking you to be ashamed of your status. I'm proud, right, that I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed that I'm a qualified lawyer. I'm not ashamed that I have second degrees. I'm not ashamed that I even pursue a PhD. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm happy to do that. You get it? But it is not a mode or a reason to feel superior to any other believer. And that must be clear in your presentation of the gospel. It must not have a hint of a status superiority. Now, you mustn't discriminate against any status such that the rich don't feel comfortable in your church or the elites don't feel comfortable in your church, but neither must you make them superior. Who's following what I'm saying here? Okay, so which is a, 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 a statusless. So that's why with Jesus, I told you, he was born... To a virgin mother. I don't, ha- I don't know how my mom can be a virgin, but his own was. Oh, you lost that joke. Pray, pray. You have to pray a bit more for that. But he was born to a woman who naturally should be stoned and called immoral. Look at the balance. And the dad was an, a devout guy. The guy is so indecent that he doesn't even do a public shaming of the girl. Some guys will have gone on Facebook, they'll have texted a friend, told someone by WhatsApp. You know, some guys are just stupid. They don't know how to keep information. They'll have sent a, an email to someone and all that. He kept it. He didn't even want to shame her. In today's work culture, of cancel culture, he will have put it on Twitter. People will have mobbed her. And then the Savior will have stayed back. So that was it. Then eventually he had to be taken to Egypt to hide okay then he was brought back and then 
uh, yeah, sorry, before he was taken to Egypt. Before he was taken to Egypt, he was circumcised, and they couldn't do the rites, normal rites. They had to do the rites of a poor, poor family. Look at the background. He's in the main, born in the manger, born by the virgin woman. So God is linking all the nations. Poor, he's in the temple. Then he goes to Egypt, he comes back. How have I called my son? God hides his son in Egypt. He comes back, okay? He's in Bethlehem. He grows up. He's, he's amidst the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the doctors of the law. In Luke 2, he even learns from them. See how God links everybody. Okay? He grows up. He goes to John, his cousin. He's baptized amongst other people. He goes to the wilderness, as we, as we can look at it. He's tempted of the devil, goes to minister. Then he goes back to the temple. And from that, we begin to see him with everyone. He is with Zacchaeus, the street known fraudulent guy. Before Zacchaeus, or after Zacchaeus, he is found with the prostituting woman. Okay? He's found with everyone. He's found with the Gentile. He's found with the small children. He's found with the rich. He's found with the rulers of the Jews. He's found with everybody. Then he hangs on the cross with criminals. He is buried in the grave of the rich. He's raised from the dead. He appears to women. Are you following all that? So he presents an ecclesia that is statusless. Why is he doing that with everyone? So you can see that God is rich upon all that call upon his name. So a, a church a community-based ministry that is multi-ethnic, statusless. For example, look at Paul. Paul writes to Paul writes to Onis, um, writes to Philemon. The book of Philemon uh, uh, is, is quite a beautiful piece. Philemon is a wealthy guy, or you know, the elite status. He's is a slave owner. Okay, a Greco-Roman kind of slave owner. He has obviously a wealthy guy. In fact, Paul recognizes his charity for the saints. That means he's known for welfare. He, 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 he assists the saints a lot. And Paul writes to him. And Paul, first of all, tells him, when I, you know, you're a fellow laborer with me. I know, uh, he says, I'm, God always make mention of you when I remember your love for the saints, your faith towards Lord Jesus Christ, love for the saints. Uh, and I say, I pray, and I ask and pray, that the communication of your faith will become effectual by every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. Okay, now when he says that, we always stop at that point, but we are not going into the reason why he prayed that prayer. He prayed that prayer because, now you are in a Greco-Roman community where status matters, all right? Uh, uh, Caesar is... You know, he's already a status god, and everybody's like that. They, they measure people by wealth, by education. And so here is uh, Philemon. He's in that category. He's in the elitist category, and he lives in that area. In, in Nigeria, maybe he lives in Banana Island. I don't know what you call your, uh, your, your GRAs here. Banana Island is uh, not where they grow bananas, all right? Because if you go in there and mess up, they'll do you like bananas, okay? So he's in that area, but he's now born again. He was probably, uh, probably one of those folks because the church in Colossae wasn't planted by Paul directly. It was um, those folks, you know, uh, 
was one of Paul's disciples that went there to plant the church. So Paul now gets, you know, one of those days he's, he's in prison and he meets Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave uh, who ran away from Philemon. So Onesimus is born again and now he, begins, he becomes an associate of Paul. And he tells his story to Paul. Say, ah, sir, there's something I didn't tell you uh, during the membership classes. What's that? Um, actually, I used to work for a certain guy, Philemon. And uh, I ran away. And Paul knows that the implication, of course, historically speaking, if you run away, you have to pay a very heavy fine or is a death sentence. So he says that to Paul. And then Paul says, okay, I know Philemon. Philemon, to me, is a brother in Christ. In society, all right, he's in the Forbes list. He's in the wealthiest man in Africa. But to me, in God's ecclesia, he's a brother. And also he's a fellow minister of the gospel. And you, to me, you are in society a servant slave, but to me, you're a brother. So Paul found a common ground, the church. So he said, okay, I'm going to write to Philemon. Okay, Philemon, you know about Onesimus? You should know. No slave master forgets the guy who ran away. And he says, well, I met him in prison. And Paul is quite systematic. Now, Onesimus, the, the, the Greek meaning of Onesimus means useful. So Paul does a play of words. He said, well, when I was in jail, uh, this is me quoting him without mentioning him or, or me paraphrasing what he said. While I was in prison, you didn't come. You sent your messengers, sent me emails sent me text messages, but Onesimus was around. <laughs> and he was useful for me. Well, he ran from you as a slave, but he came to me as a brother in Christ. He's now born again. See, that means he's now your brother forever. Paul now says, okay, um, whatever he has done for you. Now, the first thing Paul does, he resolves the status issue. You are now brothers. Okay, but Paul doesn't ignore what he did uh, because uh, it, it, it cost him a commercial, heavily commercial uh, uh, loss. He says, well, I'm, I'm sure uh, he must have done something for you. Well, I'm going to ask you to let it go uh, and charge it to my account, whatever he has done for you. And then, uh, but... Do not forget. Now, when your pastor says, put it in my account, you know that means just let go. So he says, uh, don't forget that you also hold me your life. <laughs> Look at that. He, it ties him to the root of salvation, where we are all as sinners saved by grace. He introduces him again, reminds him of the brotherly fellowship that is now that you are in Christ, you belong to the same father. Then he says, you are now both related to me. You are both my partners in the ministry. Those are strong relationship ties that we all must honor. Fellow believers, fellow, um, uh, uh, no, no, for, sorry, fellow sinners <laughs> who got saved. Fellow believers. Okay, that's critical so that even those who are not saved don't think you are superior to them. Fellow sinners now saved. Now we are believers together. We have common fellowship. Two, three. We are now working together with the same pastor. We have the same pastor. We have the same spiritual leadership. 
says he's my partner, you are my partner. That's three, right? Hope you're taking notes of what I'm talking about. Take note of everything. Three. So Paul, the status is what created the wedge. Paul says there's something greater than that status. It's called the church. In the church, just like James said, he said, what kind of rubbish? Somebody comes in, he has a a uh, 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 hundred carat, I'm crazy to say that, a gold ring, and he has a lovely wristwatch, comes in in a Ferrari 2021 model, and you say, wow, you're welcome to church. You give him a seat in the front. Another guy comes in, and you say, uh, you see his uh, uh, sandals, like the, his feet short with permission of the gospel of peace. Um, it's like, um, you see the guy, and say, sorry, are you having a rag day? And the guy says, no. Uh, what do you come to church with? I came to church. To do what? To fellowship. Did they tell you the church you were supposed to go to? So they stay at the back. James says, you're, you're crazy. He says, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in his kingdom. And he, he says that. So the ecclesia is where we are bound. We have no choice. Do you get it? We have no choice. So watch this now. The ecclesia is where you imagine you, you felt you were the only son. Then your dad says, something I never told you. Um, um, I have a son. And then he brings a son. Uh, you, whether you fight it or you hate it, that guy's your brother. All right? All right, good. So he says, we're partners. Then he says, look, you also owe me your life. Which means that we are always in debt. The believer is always in debt. You are a debtor. In Romans 8, 12, Paul says, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, but if you through, if you live after the flesh, you'll die, but if you through the spirit, modify this body, you shall live. We are debtors to live and walk in the spirit. In, in Romans 15, where he, uh, that should be verse 26 and 27, he says, the fact that the the, 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 the the Jews have sown to you spiritual things, you are debtors to give to them material things. Paul says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the Jews. You are a debtor. You owe. Somebody has prayed for you. Somebody has taught you the word. You owe. You are always owing. Romans 13, 8. Oh, no man, nothing but love. Which means that you have the debt of love to love others. Who's following what I'm saying here? So Paul says to Philemon, you owe me your life. Right? So the ecclesia is where we pay back debts. We pay back debts. Don't just stand in here and raise your hands and say, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. And the answer is, here I am to worship. See, if you worship with songs and not your deeds, you're a hypocrite. Worship must be substantial. Anyone can sing. I told them in church in the last convention. I said, there are people here. I said, Celine Dion sings better than most of you, if not all of you in the music team. So that's not it. And if she comes here, she'll sing the same songs better than you. But what makes you different, I hope she's saved though, is the fact that what you say in songs is what you do. 
when you say you mean more than this world to me, don't let it stop on a Sunday morning. Show it for Tuesday Bible study. Can I have an amen? If you say you mean more than this world to me, then let us see it in how you put priorities in what you do. But if you come here and you cry, no one else can touch my heart as you do, you didn't include your MD or your favorite club like Chelsea. The pastor is unstable in that. I told him this morning. He's always shifting. He, he doesn't, he's not loyal to any club. This year alone, he has belonged to three different clubs. Such a disloyal man. I'm saying that because uh, he thinks I owe him money, but I'm... I'm <laughs> you don't say that publicly, all right? <laughs> you know I'm a lawyer by training, so I'm going to put up a defense till you are the one owing me. Anyway... <laughs> You know, I didn't know what was going to happen at that Champions League final, so I called him up. I said, I'm telling you, Man City will win. So he said, are you sure, guy? I said, ah. I, put a, I placed a bet. And uh, I'm so disappointed in him. He hasn't spoken with me for a whole day. He didn't text me, how are you? He's not praying for me, no prophecy, no song. And he says, when am I getting my money? Can, how you so carnal, so worldly? A, a man of God should be focused on heavenly things. So worldly. I, can, I said, I said, you disappoint me. I <laughs> know he's an interesting person. You, you know, you know, you know, you know. I lost as a brother. You know, first comfort me before you ask for material things. <laughs> Anyway, so we have, we owe ourselves. Do you know, you owe the person who preached to you to preach to others. You owe, you are always owing. You owe the debt of love. You're a debtor. See, I'm a debtor. I don't think I heard you. Say it loud, come on. You're a debtor. So Paul says, you owe me your very life. Then Paul says that, I know you won't just do what I said. You do much more. Which means we are also bound in loyalty and faithfulness to our relationships. Loyalty to our relationships. There are people that, I, I mean, I, I, they talk to me from Ghana and I say, I just run through him. That's how it works. I say, what do you think? I don't have to pray about it. He says, this is it. I'm not going to pray about it. God puts people in your life so you don't have to pray to him. And the answer is, oh, no, no problem. And we have a debt. Say, I know you do much more. There was a guy like that. He, 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 he knew myself and uh, Dr. Abel Damena where we relate very closely. And uh, he, he had a guy who preached for him that was, you know, getting on Dr. Abel publicly and, you know, writing stuff and it was obvious. So the, the guy who invited the guy who was doing that now try to invite me. So I, I just didn't respond. So for about a year or two. So he came back and then he was wondering why I wasn't responding. I'd preached for him before. So um, he now got to, to Dr. Abel and Dr. Abel said, but why would you bring two conflicting preachers to your pulpit, confuse your congregation, then bring somebody who practically speaks evil of me every day? I said, I didn't know, sir. I'd actually cut off the guy. And because, I mean, I'm not saying you cut people off, but when people become poisonous, you have to stay clear of them. So he said he did that. And the guy says, oh, okay, fine. 
I said, now, fine. I mean, you have to be clear in what you're doing. You don't, you don't play politics with your pulpit. Is that very clear? So when he did that, then in our post, he said, oh, 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 oh. Is that why Pastor Chris hasn't responded to me? He said, what did you think before? I said, I owe my relationships to the faithful lawyer, committed to them, when they are right and when they are wrong. Are you in church? So Paul says, I know you. You go beyond it. Let me tell you the last, <laughs> the last straw that will break the camel's back. Watch this. He, you, it first started with the platform of we're sinners, now saved, brotherly fellowship, we walk together in the ministry, you owe me your life, I know you're going to do more, you've proven that you're faithful, you do more. The last one was this. You know, I told you that a slave normally, when they get you, is either they kill you, or they pay a heavy, heavy fine. Oftentimes, they're not able to pay the heavy fine, so they, you, they just cruci crucify them or they shoot them if they're guns then. <laughs> you know what Paul did? Paul is one of the wildest persons I know. He sent the letter through Onesimus. <laughs> How many of you can trust your associates that way? That I know you will do the word. He sends the letter through Onesimus. So, imagine you seeing your runaway slave and for the first time in years or so, you say, you want to say, Oni! You now say, Brother Onesimus. I call that letter a summary of all Paul's epistles. That's what it is. So that's what the church is. The church is where tribes in Ghana are brothers. I'm grateful to God for a man called Ray McCauley. We may not preach the same things on many levels, but when there was strong appetite in South Africa, Rema Church in South Africa became the melting pot of all racist, appetite things. It was his church that the blacks, the Africans, the Europeans, they all met and fellowshiped. Melting pot. So the ecclesia of God is where they stand statusless relationship where you find people and that's why I, I look at churches where they have things like business men's fellowship you know I go ahead and say women's I go to that moment women's fellowship or married women's fellowship some of you have single mothers I've had those have divorced people's fellowship interesting in, in making a clear demarcation amongst people unconsciously. You know, I, I, I remember that I was, a, I was an alumni president of my set and then because uh, I have to now, have to, I have to relate to a lot of people, Muslims, Shintoists, atheists, non-atheists, confused ones, Christians, pretending Christians, Muslims, idol worshippers, so then one person came to me and gave a suggestion. He said, why can't I create... He said, Shagun, you guys, you know, we're of a different level. He said, we're classmates, but we're no longer mates. You know, he said, oh, I just listened. He said, uh, let's create a group of all of us who, you know, who, you know, we're not on the same level with these guys. So that uh, we have another group in the group 
that shows our class, our exposure. Say, so, you know, you, you look at the kind of people you roll with. You look at, you know, you're, you're exposed. I listened to him for over 35 minutes. Exactly somebody you know. <laughs> 35 minutes. And then when it was done, I said, well, based on my conviction of what humanity is through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that influences what I do, I'm sorry I can't do that. I want to be able to relate with everybody the same way. For whatever I have in life is a privilege. And that was the answer I gave. My faith does not permit me to create a group for those who are wealthy so that we can show superiority over it. I'm not talking about church here, all right? I'm talking about a secular organization. I said, I'm really sorry. I'd rather have myself lift others up and show them how superior I am. I'm just a product of time and chance. You didn't determine where, how you were born. So how do you think you're better? Who told you if both of you were given the same chances, that fellow would not be in your family and you are in ease? Now, I'm not saying that some people don't get irresponsible. I'm not saying, I'm just saying generally we should not have an entitlement culture to how we see things. That's just by the way. So, the church there becomes statusless. So, your car house has now become where different tribes have fellowship. Different state. The guy's coming, he drops his car, he comes in here, he joins those who are cleaning the auditorium. He doesn't use, you know, he doesn't join the, I don't know what department takes care of the church auditorium. Maybe, huh? Hospitality. Then he says, uh, uh, housekeeping. He doesn't say, we call ours uh, operations. That's what we call it. And then he says, uh, uh, praise the Lord, uh, I'm so privileged to be in this department. Um, but I, I won't be able to come for well, all the meetings uh, and show up on Sunday to claim the service. But I have this uh, company that does it for my organization. Um, they take $1,000 every week. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll be able to do that. We don't want such guys. Brother, come. Join us. Drop your limousine and come here. That's the ecclesia of God. You come clean with us. Amen? Someone joined church like that and uh, joined one of those departments where they clean the toilets, all right? And then she, uh, she comes from, she lives in one of the, arguably the wealthiest estate in Africa. And then she says, well, uh, joined the department and was giving them uh, the cleaning utensils. I said, mm-mm, mm-mm. And I said, thank you for the gifts you are giving us, the soaps, the disinfectants they're giving us, but we want you to come. That's, that's how our pastor trained us. You have to come. And we'll be... <laughs> we'll be mixing the glory together. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> the fact that you want to pay for it, you are showing class. Don't show class. And Nosha, don't say, uh, rather than handling an ocean, can we get professional oceans? I can pay for it. It's $2,500. I can pay a year ahead. Give us that money. You come and do the ocean. That's the ecclesia of God. Your house has become that. The rich, the elites 
all of us sit down together. People that can't sit down with you in board meetings, you now sit together and say, we are together again. We are together again. That's the church of God. People that, they, how, where would, where, where would Joseph Arimathea and Peter, where would they meet? Is it where they sell fried fish? Do you get it? If Arimathea is going to eat fried fish, he will send somebody. Where would they meet? The worst case is that um, uh, Peter is supplying fish to the, the, the lowest part of the group of companies that Arimathea commands. He won't even have a, an interface with him. But you know what? <laughs> In Bible study, Arimathea is sitting, Joseph is teaching. And he's asking questions. Ah, Pastor, sir, that scripture re-explain. That is the ecclesia of God. All barriers are broken. Jews and Gentiles, broken. Rich and poor, broken. Slave, broken. There is a genderless. Now, I'm careful of that word because of the later development. Okay. <laughs> it's where male and female, there's no other gender, have a common platform to serve God. Male and female have a common platform. Do you notice that everything I've said so far solves a societal problem? Who noticed that? Everything I've said so far solves a societal problem. You know, the truth is that how would people in the church, imagine if the church is born of people who are generous, the Acts 2 model, Acts 4 model, Acts 11 model, who supply to the wants of the saints. I'm not saying everybody in church will be rich. That's not possible. It's never going to happen. But basic needs will be met. But what we have had so far has been given, has been tilted to the man of God who also should be supported and honored but the giving goes beyond the man of God. It's for all saints. 1 Corinthians 16.1 as touching collection of the saints. Romans 15, 26 and 27, given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So we have the honor principle of giving and we have supporting the poor principle. Both work. What the woman did to Jesus was to honor him. What says the poor you always have amongst you, which means there's a giving to the poor that is different from giving to your pastor. But none of them must be neglected. Let me see your hand very clearly. So that is the ecclesia. So a lot of issues are resolved in that multi-ethnic, diverse ethnic, statusless, all right, non-gender discriminative, that is no female and male discrimination, setting. That is the church. And let me say this. That is your mission to make disciples of all nations. So you are the uniting force for different groups in Ghana, different status-related people in Ghana, different ethnic groups in this country. You are. Because God, through the church, 
brings men and women together, great and small. If today we have children's church, and I think it's fine. We have this also in our church. But the truth is, did you notice that the same letter where Paul addressed the women, the husband, he addressed the children, which means they all read the same thing. They were all seated together. Which also means that we mustn't keep our children at the back so they don't disturb us. The only reason why we can take them away out of the general congregation is because of comprehension. It's not because of distinction. You are not better than any saint in the children's church. The moment you think you are better, you have an idol problem. You are idolizing your age. Salvation is greater than your age. You are not more of a saint than that eight-year-old boy in the children's church who is born again. Neither am I. So the church becomes that melting pot of all we have described. So I said also earlier that the church therefore resolves the sociological challenges in humanity which sin has created. Sin brings arrogance, pride, bitterness, you know, envy, uh, class superiority. They function on the fruit of sin. So, as I go to make disciples of every nation, I must be ready to create a multi-ethnic, diverse ethnic, statusless, male and female, non-discriminatory assembly of the saints. Let me see how you're following this. Is this clear? Is this clear enough? So that's what the word is about. That's why Paul, Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone. Why does he use everyone? You have to understand the background. He's writing to Rome where there were Jews and Gentiles. Now, what happened is that this is a brief of history. I did teach it in our series in the book of Romans. And that uh, now when the first church in Rome was planted by believers that went back after the Pentecost. They went, they planted the churches. But then there was a time Claudius Caesar asked them to all return. And so those believers, okay, now had Gentile converts. So they had to leave, went back to Jerusalem. By the time they were back, they now, uh, and of course the earlier stages, they infused a lot of Jewish culture into the churches. So by the time they came back, the Gentiles had dropped much of it. So there was now the tension between the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish believers. So that's why Paul says, first to the Jews, after to the Greeks. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, as is written, the just shall live by his faithfulness. So righteousness, first of all, is a uniting force of God for all races. So that's why Paul's argument from Romans 1 to 2 was to tell the Jew, you are not any better than the Gentile. You are all sinners. Romans 3, Paul says he is God of the Jews, no, he's also of the Gentiles. And he mentions justification there. In Romans 4, he paints the picture of Abraham was not circumcised when God gave him the promise. He's also an heir of the whole world, not just of the Jews. Romans 4. Then he lays the foundation. Romans 5, he traces Abraham back to Adam. 
who was not a Jew. That's Paul's argument there. Through to 6, to 7, to 8. If you look at it very well, by Romans chapter 8, he was really done with the theology. What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And he says, we are more than conquerors through him that has loved us. He settled that there. Then in Romans chapter 9, he says, yet he has anguish for his own brethren, kinsmen, Israelites. Then he goes into the concept of the election, 9 and 10. When you go to 11, you know, if you're in the community and you're in the Gentile region and you're looking, thank you, sir, tell them. As he's facing the Jews, say, no, it's by election. Election is if there was Ishmael and there was Isaac, that means it's not natural lineage. If there was Jacob and there was Esau, so he killed that entitlement culture to the gospel. As the Gentiles were celebrating, he turned to them, and hey, you, if this can be rejected, don't think you cannot be taken out. If they can be engrafted back in, you can also be taken out as a nation, he meant. So do not allow pride to make you become blind to the gospel. For God has mercy upon all. So everybody went quiet in the church. Nobody's in glory anymore. So when he was done with all that, and I, I think this chapterization was fine. So therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Are you following this? Romans 12, 1. You present your bodies. Interestingly, the King James messed that up for us. When you present your bodies there, it's assumed it's talking about presenting your leg and your toes. That doesn't make any kind of sense. But because the word body is the word soma, S-O-M-A, used for union, a corporate union of different parts. Now, what has he achieved from one, from chapter 1 through to chapter 8? Chapter 6, for example, he says in verse 6, he says, your old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin, your union with sin, be destroyed. Romans 8, 13, we through the spirit mortify the deeds of the union with sin. Not the physical body. You don't kill your physical body as salvation. It's the body of sin. Who's following what I'm saying here? Bodies for union. Body of Christ is what? Is it, is it leg of Christ? No. Union. Okay? So now, in his exegetical manner, Paul had already let them see the body of who and who now. Jews and Gentiles with Christ Jesus. So therefore, present that union a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't think like a Jew or Gentile. Be transformed. Are you following? By the renewing of your mind that you may approve that which is the good, uh, acceptable and perfect will of God. So the body we present, paristem in the Greek, is that union we already have in Christ Jesus. Who's following what I'm saying here? Not your leg or your nose, okay? <laughs> All right, so that union. And that body is in the assembly of the saints. So when he's done with that, he talks about civil authorities, that the Jews may feel that they shouldn't respect them. You have to respect them as long as they're taking care of, uh, of, uh, of, of evil. Then in Romans 14, he says, well, well, we have some brethren who are weak in the faith. Receive them without doubtful disputation. Some say we don't, know, we don't want to eat herbs. Some say, well, we can eat anything. 
No doubt the one that eats anything may be the Gentile believer. The one that says herbs is the Jewish believer. He says, yeah, he said, well, if one esteems one day over the other, he said, everything is unto the Lord. That's what he's doing. Is in the ecclesia of God, we can have people have different sentiments. He says we embrace them together as long as they are not fundamental. Romans 15 goes into that and then it talks about giving back to the church in Jerusalem. Then in Romans 16, he begins to greet the churches. The churches. The people. And most of those that he recognizes are Gentile leaders of a church formed by Jewish believers. Hallelujah. It's one of Paul's most complicated, complex, yet lovely letters. So, we have to mirror that in our communities and societies such that we are not found projecting a primordial sentiment in the way we carry out the work of the ministry. Is that clear? Is that clear? What leads me to what I was going to say, amen, that wasn't my side subject. I just gave you a background to what I was about to say. Hope I was fine the background? Very good. Which means that we carry out the work by the Spirit. Because that unity I mentioned now is only achieved in the Spirit. By one Spirit, Romans, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, are you baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, bond or free, and you are made to drink into one Spirit. So it is by the Spirit that that is achievable. We mustn't first do it in the flesh. Found do it in the flesh. Now what I was trying to do is that, okay, if um, uh, French people uh, wear one leg of shoes, I will not start wearing one leg. That's not how to do it. That's not the point. It's to first of all endeavor to achieve that bond of peace in the unity of the spirit. So by the spirit of God, so God's unity in humanity is by the spirit. Same way we say blood is how we are related. Our own blood is the spirit. Is that clear? So by the spirit, we are related. Which means if I'm going to carry out the work of the great commission, it has to be by the spirit. It has to be by the spirit the spirit it's in the spirit and by the spirit that i can achieve that in my work so in in, in rome i mean john's gospel chapter 14 jesus already told us we have another comforter the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because he sees him not neither knoweth him boy dwells with you john 14 16 and 17 and shall be in you so look at the, what he says the Spirit will do. In John 14, 26, it will bring you to remembrance. Hupo mimnesco. He will bring you to remembrance, cause you to remember the things I said to you. And one of the core things he said to them, for example, in Mark eleven seventeen, My house is made the house of prayer for all nations. Now, if you saw that text, your mind goes to, Isaiah 56 verse 7, where verse 8 says it's in that house that God will gather the outcasts of Israel. So he had already told them that the church, the house, is for all nations. So the spirit of truth 
will bring you to that remembrance. As you do the work of the ministry, he will remind you this is not an ethnic church. He will bring you to the remembrance of the things that I said to you. He will testify of me, John 15, 26, or 16. He will testify of me. No, 26. He will testify of me, which means he will testify of Jesus, who says his flesh is the life of the whole world. John 4, 42, he is a savior of the whole world. He will testify of that. John 16, if I do not go, the comforter will not come. When I go, I will send him to you. And when he is come, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So Jesus used the word convince. Now listen carefully. This is critical. That word convince is from a group of words, elechen, E-L-E-G-H-E-N, and elecho, E-L-E-G-H-O, G-A-C-H-O. Now, that word is used oftentimes in a courtroom. In a courtroom. I'm saying this because it's a debate I'm making already with four different groups of translators of different translations. And, and, uh, and I trust that in the next five years, you'll see that reflection in a few translations. you see that reflection in a few years to come, maybe maximum five years. And I said that, you know, because, because I'm a translator too in a way. So I know that translators have a license where a word is used in the courtroom. Now, you know, King James says convict the world. Now you go to 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Now, many verses will say for conviction. I think the Amplified even says that. Now, Interestingly, that word comes from a group of words where you have Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is a substance of things for the evidence. So, reproof, proof, convicting, evidence are in a compound group of words. Now, it's a word used in the courtroom. Now, if you're a lawyer, you know what I'm saying. Now, when you come to the judge, all right, and evidence, the, law, the life of law is evidence. Okay, if you, if you shout, ah, he did this. He was the one that did it. They say, where is the evidence? So the life of law is evidence. So now, an evidence can be used by a judge for you or against you. Now, it is used, if it is used for you, it is to believe you. If it is used against you, it is to convict you. Is that clear? Come on. All right, good. So... It can also be used to convince people. So, it's a complicated word. I mean, sorry, it's a complex word. Now, the King James translators, among other translators, now use the convict part. Okay? Now, my argument is, it can be convict. The word of sin, because the next statement says, because they believe not on me. Which means the essence of it is to convince. Who's following what I'm saying here? And I have a stronger appeal. The stronger appeal is that since we know that the Greek words have a background of the Hebrew Bible, I took them to Genesis 6 and 3. 
My spirit shall no longer strive with man, for his flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now, some people laid hold on that, and they felt that what it meant was that God was promising 120 years. God doesn't promise number of years, because he doesn't kill. What he said there, now, if you go back in Bible, just take a bit of contextual study, you discover that um, Methuselah, right, was born by who? By Enoch, right? Now, Methuselah was the one who lived longer. Methuselah was the grandfather of Noah. Noah's father was Lamech. Am I right? Good. The name Methuselah means when he dies, it will happen. Because Enoch, being a prophet, all right? Now, of course, in their culture, you use children as a symbol of prophecy of what God will do. So, Methuselah's name means when he died, it will happen, which means that that flood of Noah wasn't prophesied first by Noah. It was first by Enoch, by the child that he gave birth to. So when Lamech had Noah, he called Noah's name comfort, like an intervention to that judgment. Are you following this? Uh So when, in Genesis 6-3, he says, his day shall be 120 years, which means that we will have 120 years of that comfort to convince. So if you look at it very well, from that point till when the ark closed and the rains fell, it was 120 years. So Noah took 120 years to convince them about God's salvation. So that's why the days of Noah are called the days of the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering of our God is salvation, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Who's following this there? Is that a quick study for you? Is that a quick study for you? So that means I'm, I'm particular about the word, my spirit shall no longer strive. The word strive there is the word din, D-I-N in the Hebrew. It means the same word as the word elekko, elekcho, elekchen, the same word I mentioned earlier, to convince, to convict. Now, now the argument somebody put out, and I agree with him really, is that inasmuch as the gospel will also convince those people to believe, it will convict those who don't believe. So therefore, it goes multi-purpose. That means as, as Noah is convincing them to enter the ark and be saved, he will also convict those who don't enter the ark. Are you following that? So when he says he will convict the world of sin, it means he will put out evidence for people to believe and be saved. And when those who are not saved, or those who reject the message do, he will also what? Convicted. Let me see if you understand that. Was that some study for you? Uh-huh. So, which means, now listen carefully. The spirit will convince. So, first and foremost, the work of making people believe is not mine. It is the work of the spirit. That's why he told them, he gave them an instruction to go and preach the gospel. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Mark 16, 15 to 20. John 20. 20, 20, 20, 21 and 23, but Luke gave us an important element. He says, tarry till you be endued with power from on high. Luke 24, 49. Acts 1, 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. 
John 20, 22, when it says, as my father sent me, even so send I you. Listen carefully. Then he breathed on, receive ye the Holy Ghost, was instruction before whosoever sins you remit are remitted, whosoever sins you retain are retained. Which means that what actually carries out the great commission is who? The Holy Ghost. So it's a walk reliant and dependent on the Spirit. So when it says, true worshippers worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. The word worship, I told you, is not lifting your hands and singing and song and crying. That is an expression of worship. That's not the worship. The worship is what prosqueno, P-R-O-S-K-U-N-E-O. It means to come, two words, pros, P-R-O, then the word kuneo. Kuneo means to touch someone, either by a kiss or by a head or by your feet. Pros means to come before. So worship means to pay homage. To pay homage. It's not singing. It's to pay homage. And you notice that in Matthew 2, 2, all right, I think Matthew 2, 8 and 10, those people that came from the east and brought gifts, they came to worship Jesus. They didn't sing any song. They came to bow. So that's what worship is. And they came with a gift. So giving is part of worship. To give material things. In Matthew 4, when Satan said to Jesus, all these things will I give to you if you will bow and worship me. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Matthew 4, 9 and 10, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him alone, watch that, will you serve. Which means worship is what leads to service. Two words there. Prosqueno, worship. Then serve, latterie, L-A-T-R-I-E-A, which is to give resources, to give time, energy, gifts, time, energy, gifts, work, resources, abilities. So, which means worship, the true worship of God is in how you bow to God as you serve him amongst people. If I drop an offering in the service, for example, and it's because pastor asks us to give, it is in vanity. I will give to Yakal House to worship God. I will honor my pastor to worship God. I will serve fellow believers to worship God. Who's following that? As I'm doing it, who am I doing it unto? Who am I seeing? As I'm cleaning the floor, God. So, worship is the attitude I must have in service. And this is by the Spirit. So, listen carefully. He sent them to go and preach. But he said, it is the spirit that convinces. It is the spirit, John 63, that gives life. So when he says, whosoever sins you remit are remitted, that is by the spirit. So when he says the spirit of truth will convince the world, it is through men. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 Men wrote it inspired by the Spirit. Second Peter 1, 20. No prophecy of the scripture 
is of any private interpretation. Prophecy came not to the old time by the will of man, 21, but holy men of God spake as they were what? Moved by the Holy Ghost. So when it says the Spirit will convince the world, it is through human agents. Just like in the days of Noah, how did the Spirit of God strive with man? Through who? Noah. Who's following this? Is it making sense? So which means this work is not by might, is not by power, but by the Spirit of God. Are you learning something? Are you learning something? It's by, I can only be as effective as how I yield to the Spirit. Romans 1.9. Paul says, he serves God by the Spirit. You serve God by the Spirit or in the Spirit. That is how to serve God. The difference between, you know, some, you know, some people are just very active. And it's lovely. If you see them in their village association, they are very active. Anything, I mean, anything you put there, they're always very, very active. But after a while, they may lose that zeal because they are not serving by the Holy Ghost. And I'll tell you a few things to know, a few symptoms that you know that this is just, because let me tell you something. You know, you know look up, guys. Let me, I mean, this is, do you know that there's, you know, the fact that a guy is committed and he comes every evening to church, does not mean he's serving God in truth. People go to work every morning. So there's nothing special about it. Sorry to say that. There's nothing. Now, oh, okay, what about I do vigils every day? There are people who are security men who do vigils every day. That, there's nothing special about it. Oh, what about I give? See, in Nigeria, the number one philanthropist, right, gave to charity, I can't remember whether it's 5 billion or 50 billion, but it was the largest. The number one philanthropist in the world today is not a Christian. So there's nothing really special that you gave $1 million. No, people do it now. People even give girlfriends $1 million. Not, nobody here. Do you get it? So there's no... There's nothing about that. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. Oh, that you, you, whenever pastor calls you, you respond. That's really not it. People respond to their boss at work. If I, how many hours do you spend here? Related to how many hours you spend at work? No. So, where is the issue? Is the fact that you are being used by the Spirit. That is the difference. To serve God's purposes. Let me show you a few symptoms to know that you are not serving God. For example, if your prayer life does not reflect a dependence on the Holy Ghost, you are not serving God. You will know there is no way you can carry this on out by, by the Holy Ghost. For example, you don't want to join the prayer team or the prayer groups. You don't want to pray, but you want to show up on Sunday and do ushering. Any pastor who allows you to do that does not love you. That person doesn't love you. Now, you can say, eh, but I pray in my room. Imagine if that's all we have. We all pray in our room. Mm -mm. If you truly pray in your room, you will pray with us. You will pray with us. So, what, one key area to know that somebody is serving in the flesh is his prayer life. You know, people that pray, oftentimes, there are, there are two reasons that can drive people to pray. 
And they will pray with their life. One, problems. And that's not true worship. Problems. How are you different from people who go to herbalist? They're not different. Problems. Ah, but I did it for days. I see. As a, as a young, I, was, I think it was probably three. Or two. I think it's three or four. You know. That they, we used to attend a white government church. And one of the uh, prophecies was that they had to keep me in the church because of evil. You know. And a small boy. I was kept in the church. They call it uh, Abeabo. No, there's another, uh, there's another word. Igbele. Igbele, which means you stay in the house of God. So I had to stay. If you know the hatred that thing brought to my heart. Throughout the seven days I was there, I was planning how when I grow up, I will plan a coup. Remove the government. And the first thing I'm going to do as the president is to stop all churches. That was the hatred. How can you keep me in this place? Because evil was going to come. The funny thing about it was that that church had no fence and no gate. And the door was open. So what kind of yeah, yeah, evil are you talking about? But what I'm trying to say is that, so the fact that you went to pray and you went somewhere doesn't mean that you are sincere. You just had problems. People can have, and you will fast. Somebody came to me one day and said that there's something she suspects. That's from her father's household. And she went on and on. And I was looking at her. Me, after many seminars on believers' authority. So I said, you need to do 14 days fasting. I wanted to punish her. She needed no fasting. She went. She came back. I think the 10th day, I said, you have to have seven days. The thing we are seeing is very strong. I said, on the 21 day, we see the solution. When she came, what is the solution? I now taught her what I taught them before. She said, but this is what you preached. I said, hey, no. That 21 days is to give you sense. <laughs> if you like things like that, then I'll give you. You don't have sense. So people can do things like that. So the fact that you joined us in fasting in this church, just joined. Maybe you have a problem. You think, ah, doing the pastor will speak a word into my life. So people pray a lot for one reason, problems. The only other reason is responsibility. If you are not found praying because of responsibility, that means your prayer life is not priority, responsibility, you are here to serve God. Have you wondered? Have heard people say things like, as funny as this? Jesus did not come to this world. Nobody was praying. It's not true. People were praying, though. Go and read Luke 2. Two people were praying. Simeon, the prophet, was praying. The priest. And Anna. She waited till the appearance of the Savior. She waited. She knew this was the time. And she worshipped God in fastings and prayers. There's nothing God does in the earth without prayer. Nothing. People set the ball rolling by praying. You can't doubt that Saul was prayed for. So ask me, where did Saul first hear the gospel? Didn't you read Acts 8? Acts 9? Acts 7? When Stephen was stoned, he was there. He heard that sermon. As Stephen prayed. He heard that sermon. Acts 6 and 7. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of sermons in scripture. He heard it. And that piece was exegetical. Exegetical. He heard that sermon. No, if you go and look at Stephen's 
The entire focus of Stephen's teaching was God building a temple, not made with hands. That is the focus of Paul's gospel. That thing he heard reflected in all he preached. So Paul didn't just, Paul, Paul got born again. Somebody preached to him, but the person interestingly died. <laughs> what, a, what an evangelist. He died before his convert got saved. Are you learning something? So, look at Jesus. In Luke 3, that should be 21, and when he was to be baptized, he was praying responsibilities. Mount of Travis was praying. Luke 5, is it 16? He went apart to pray. Luke 6, 12, before he chose his apostles, he was praying. Kind of guessing. When he was going to the cross, he's praying. What's he praying about? It's not problems. It's responsibility. When Saul of Tarsus got saved, Acts 9, for three days, a new convert, he was praying. How was the church, the church services, Acts 1, 14 and 15, Acts 2, 1 to 4, the Pentecost, Acts 2, 42, Acts 3, 1, prayers. So how you will know that you are not serving God, check your prayer life. Your prayer life is a true gauge of how reliant you are on God. I tell people this. A man who trusts God is given to prayers. God will trust a man that prays more than a man who quotes Bible. But the man that truly quotes Bible will also pray. Prayer shows how sincere you are about what you are doing. Because you can't do this thing by your strength. If our keyboardist here thinks it's just about skill, I know better people that can play better than you. I tell them in church, what are you playing? Did you learn from an unbeliever? Even those who sing, they, in the background, they listen to unbelievers and how they sing, they come and sing in church. What's the big deal about what you are singing? They are better orators than pastors. So that's not the issue. The issue with him is he trusts the Spirit of God. That God will take these leaves of clay, hallelujah, and use it to be a blessing to the world. A prayer I've been praying for over 26 years. As I go to preach anytime, either short before I go and put in the room, I say, Lord, take these leaves of clay. Take this unfit vessel imperfect and use it to bless the world. That's what prayer does. Prayer fills up areas where you don't have the abilities. Prayer fills up your imperfections, your weaknesses. So look at how much you pray. will show whether you are serving by the Spirit or not. Secondly, how much of God's word you know and practice. If you don't take God's word seriously, either to know it and practice it, you can't be saying you are serving God sincerely. How do you want to do it? Because it is the worship in spirit and in reality. God's reality is his word. Your practice of God's word is worship. Romans 12, 2. That you may know that which is proved that which is good, acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Your practice of God's word is worship. Those who are not serving God don't care about others. You know, you can't say things like this. I say, you, know, you can't say, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care who sees me. You can't say, you've left that stage. I mean, we've left that stage. I don't care. You know, when I was going to get married, we we're going to get married. My wife makes that statement. When I was going to get married, did you get married yourself? When we were going to get married, <laughs> you know, my dad said, let's just do court wedding quickly within a month. So I now told him something. I said, something that happened around Nigeria, then a, a preacher of our generation had a, an issue, you know, before he got married. I said, don't let's create doubts in the minds of people. Let's give at least seven, eight months. Because believers can calculate. They don't know how to read the Bible, but they can calculate that one. I said, let's give them time. And let's also be accountable. Let's do this. He said, okay. He said, ah, that's true. You are a pastor. He said that. So, you can't do things anyhow. You, are, you act on God's word. You don't say, well, you know, I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care. When I was doing my law dinner in, 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 in Nigeria, in law school, we, go, we have... When you're you done with the faculty, uh, the university, you go through one year law school. I, I think you do that here too. So before you are qualified. So during the law dinners, you are, you are supposed to take a dinner. They have a dinner, uh, a dinner you know, set up like that. And one of the things in the dinner is alcohol. I mean, not spiritual one. Alcohol. So they now say it's compulsory to take it and all that. So somebody at my table said, ah, I know you can't, I'm not taking it. I said, no. I said, I don't take it. He says, yes. I said, no. But to me, it is. He said, eh, but what's, I said, there's a big deal. I said, anybody can see me now. And they will see me. And then, yeah, I said, but the Bible, he now went into a long discussion over alcohol. I said, look, you can't explain this thing better than me. I'm a preacher on the issue of alcohol. Uh, I said, but go and read your Bible very well. <laughs> go and read your Bible. And look at the difference between Noah and Abraham. It's not funny. Go and look at it. The same thing God said to Abraham, he said to Noah. Go and read it now. Go and read about Lot. See what Solomon said about wine. He said, eh, but it is when you get drunk. I said, what's the measurement? Half cup? And we know that, I know you don't drink, oh. A cup, uh, a whole drum, you are still sharp. Another brother, he smells it like this. He's slim. I'd rather not eat meat. If eating meat can make my brother to sin, I'd rather not eat meat for the rest of this. Who's following what I'm saying here? That is how servants think. You can't use your liberty as an occasion to serve the flesh. You do the word... To please God and also to influence others. First Timothy 4.12, be an example of the believer in your conduct. So two, you act on the word to be an example to people. Number three, when you are doing it joyfully or you are grumbling, the moment you are grumbling, 
And usually we grumble against people. Notice that in the entire numbers from Exodus, the people who grumble, there was never a time that they said they were grumbling at God. It was always at Moses and Aaron. But God said they were grumbling at him. Every murmur you do in church, you think it's Pastor Gilbert. <laughs> no, it's God. Though. And you answer for it. Because mumbling and complaining is a sin. Paul listed, he said, do not murmur as a murmur and destroy of the destroyer. He repeated it in Philippians 2. Do all things without murmuring. Mumbling is a sin. Uh, uh, must we come on Saturday to pray? Uh, 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 you know that thing that you are silently humming like a bee? Oh, it is a sin. So of us, the only sin we know is uh, fornication. As though that is the only sin. That's great. Christ died for, uh, uh, he made him to be fornication for us who knew no sin. <laughs> Murmuring is a sin. Anger is a sin. Anger is a sin. Fear is a sin. Some of us, we increase the temple. As we get to the car park, you just say, ah, Sister Joanne, hmm. What did you say about that? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that other church there that my cousin attends, they don't have all this prayer, so I don't know. See how Satan is flowing through you. You know, we're learning flowing with the Holy Ghost. You are flowing with the Holy Satan. Murmuring, complaining. You are no longer in the spirit. You are now in the flesh. Let me stop at that so that I can hit a few things I wanted to say. So, look at your prayer life. Your prayer life is an indicator. And it's, in fact, if you don't know any indication, that one is clear. The reason why you are lazy to pray is because you are not serving in truth. The more I see what I have to do in the body of Christ, in my local assembly, it drives me to pray. So, when you see problems in the flock, challenges... Listen to me. Challenges should, should, see, should drive your knees deeper in prayer. Do you know that the times you prayed the most, if you look at it very well, you were inspired the most is when there were challenges in ministry. You know this one, eh? Oga, you have to pray. No answer from anywhere. You have to pray. You throw your all at it. There is nothing you cannot pray about. Your study of the word, number two, to know and to practice it to be an example to others and look at your attitudes, your grumbling. You should be as happy when pastor says, Brother John, you are leading worship. To say, Brother John, you are not leading worship. You are now going to clean the floor. You should be, if you are happier leading worship because people are going to see you. I'm not happy because you are only going to see people's manifestation in the toilet. Or you prefer to not be seen so that you don't minister to us by the Spirit. Because some people can like that because they don't, they don't have to know the word. Because they are clean and go home. Then there's a problem. You must have an attitude of service all the time. So, we minister the word of God to people by the Spirit. Is that very clear? 
We are not convincing them. That's why those people who try to do all this rubbish, they, they try to do arts, entertainment, is because they lack a knowledge of the workings of the Holy Ghost. Some guys years ago, they did a, they did a, a movie to win souls. They call it R-I-T-T-S. No. R-I-T. Rumble in the temple. Rumble in the temple. So it is this drama. The drama was supposed to look like a secular movie. So they tried to now act an X-rated scene. I'm talking about church, oh. X-rated scene. Trying to depict people who were having sex. And they did dim light. I'm not joking, oh. Ah. As I was doing that, I said, in the church. One of my friends there, OJ, he said, MOG, even me, I had rumble in my temple. <laughs> After that confusion and rubbish, he said, Praise the Lord. With what you are worth now, if you want to give your life to Christ. One confused guy now came outside. He wanted to give his life to Christ. Which Christ? Is it the one under the red light or the green light? You only do all that because there's no Holy Ghost. Pray. Spend time in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, praying always all prayer in the spirit. Pray. Pray in the spirit. Often. I told you yesterday, what you are going to teach is what your pastor is teaching. So it's now, I say it, if you have the word, Right? Without prayer. It's like having a bullet and no gun. If you have prayer without the word, it's like having a gun without a bullet. Prayer is what makes the word effective. Oh, pastor, uh, they are not listening. Uh, 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 I think this area, they don't know the word. They don't want to have the word. See, the more you are grumbling, you won't pray. Go and fast and pray. When you come out, you won't ask me that question again. So pray in the spirit. Also, second to last thing I'll share, be led by the spirit. There's such a thing as being led by the spirit in ministry. Be led. Be led. Now, we have a general instruction to go into all the world, but there are sometimes the Holy Ghost will prompt your heart. I know pastors will teach you the leading of the spirit, right? Uh-huh. So you Pay attention to those things. Be led by the Spirit of God. Look for one. Jesus was led by the Holy Ghost. He was led by the Holy Ghost. Be led by the Spirit. Paul himself. There was a time like that. Look at Acts 13. The Holy Ghost said, verse 2, separate unto us Barnabas and Saul. That's being led by the Spirit of God. In Acts 16, they were going to go to Asia and the Holy Ghost forbid them not to go. They tried to go again to Britain. He says, don't go. Then later he permitted them to go. So you can be led not to go to a place yet. They are led to go there later. Years ago, I was given an, an open door to Southern Africa, Zimbabwe. I didn't go to Lesotho eventually, but Zimbabwe, South Africa. So there was a group of churches. So I went there, even on the diplomatic uh, uh, passport. I got there. And as I got to that nation, God told me, did I send you here? I kind of felt, wow. You know, I talked throughout the meetings and he said, go back to Nigeria. I'll open these nations myself to you. That was 23 years ago, and he did. People from that nation came over to hear us first. 
That's what he said he was, he was going to do. And I told people that years ago, and it happened. How open it yourself, myself. So the truth is, the leading of the Spirit of God is important in ministry. Acts 20, 22. I go bound in the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that are before me, save which the Holy Ghost, witnesses in every city that uh, uh, bonds and afflictions await me. Romans 8, 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We have received, the, uh, the, not the Spirit of God, again to fear, verse 15, but we are adoption by the Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So, you be led by the inward witness. The inward witness is that witness of the Holy Ghost in you that agrees to something, refutes it, or endorses it. Agrees to something, refutes it, or endorses it. Witness of the Holy Ghost. You are also led by utterances, prophecies. Tomorrow we're going to have believers meetings. Amen. Utterances, move of the Holy Ghost, you learn. Sometimes visions. So, be led by the Spirit of God. Revelations, utterances. Be led. Be led. So everything you hear in church eventually equips you for the work of the ministry. Then finally, minister by the Spirit. Minister by the Spirit. There are places you will go to, right? That the first, the way you are going to get into a place is by workings of miracles. Some is by the word of knowledge. The word of wisdom. So, Learn to also flow with the Spirit of God. The knowledge of the ministry of the Spirit is fundamental to your ministry. Is fundamental to your ministry. You must be a person of the Word and a person of the Holy Ghost. A person of the Word and a person of the Holy Ghost. Is fundamental. See those things that happen in the meetings yesterday, is it Wednesday now, Wednesday, really Thursday and yesterday. Let me tell you what they do. They give you a sense of the moving of the Spirit. It's when you go out to reach out that you will see the import of those things. So be someone who is giving to the things of the Spirit. There are things that God will do and He will just break protocol for you to do something. So be giving to the leading of the Spirit of God in the work of the ministry. You need to learn something. So let me go over the things I said. So I'll take questions. We said one, the discipleship, which we said yesterday, is community-based teaching of God's word, bringing people together, you know, must reflect the ecclesia of God, the church of God, which means to gather people who are multi-ethnic. You mustn't have an ethnic-based church, ministry, neither elitist-based, so it's statusless too. Statusless, great and great and small, rich and poor. We said also it's non-discriminatory of any gender. Of course, gender is male and female. Non-discriminatory. It unites people. It's a melting pot, a melting point of diverse things done in our society. Because the ecclesia of God solves sociological problems. We are not detached from our world. You see, the problem is that there's been a theology that's been pushed for about 600 years that says we came to this world, we get born again, then we leave. It's a very false definition of scripture. God wants us. <laughs> it is this world that God wants to claim. And the way he will do it is by the church. So we have 
a multi-ethnic, statusless church. And I said to us that that is, of course, where we serve one another, that is, we owe one another. I owe you service, I owe you prayer, I owe you love. So we are a community of debtors. We are a community of debtors. The pastor is a debtor. I'm a debtor to you. That's why I'm here. He's a debtor to you. That's why he's your pastor. I'm a debtor to you. I owe you to bless you. I owe you to serve you. I owe you to be generous to you. I owe you my time. I owe you because I owe the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you owe to listen, to honor. Do you get it? So we are, we are jointly debtors. We owe ourselves. That fellow you do ushering for, you are owing the person service. And it's not meant to demand for it. It's God that is demanding for it. It's like God says, you owe me something. And then, what's your name, sir? Huh? And say, Brother Rini, collect it for me. You get it? You are owing that person. So it's God that will say, have you paid your debt to him in the uh, hospitality unit? Have you paid the debt in the technical, in the media, in the ocean? Have you paid the debts? So we're a community of debtors. None of us is debt free. And you will not be debt free for the rest of your life. You will always be hoeing fellow believers. Having said that, we say that thing is only achieved by the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit of God is in the, is in the Spirit that we are all united. And so we must function in this work by the Spirit. So we went into John 16 that we preach and convince people by the Spirit. Okay? And if we know that, it implies, that's where we have patience, long-suffering, and all that. You know, if we have that, we say, therefore, there are symptoms that show whether you are serving God in the Spirit or not. We say, prayer life, the way you study God's Word, and the way you are an example to others. We said that. And your attitude in service, you are still complaining, grumbling, giving excuses. Some people... They, are, they have a permanent disease. It's called excusitis. They can give excuses. There was one sister like that. She said, sir, I'm sorry. She said, I am sorry. So I said, come, let me show you something. So I just took, you know, you, the way you can know the history of someone's charts. So I just typed sorry. The sorry in my phone from her was enough to build a house. Say, if everybody was like you, and they always send me text, sorry, sorry. We'll change our church to sorry community church. We'll all just be sorry people. Some people, are, some people can complain. Some people are so unaccountable. Unaccountable. They'll get married and send a text to the pastor. Pastor, I have good news for you. I just got married. Some people bring children there to church. I just had a child. I said, child. Were you married? Ah, you didn't know. But you know a prophet. <laughs> so folks like that. If everybody should give the way you give. Hmm? You know, have you had a meat program before? That the people that came to sell food got more offering than church. <laughs> Imagine if everyone. People have money, I know your pastor was saying yesterday that you don't collect money in the program. Please, collect money. Please, sir. Collect money. You won't disturb the flow of the spirit. There's no COVID in the money. Amen. Up of Jesus. 
I don't know the answer. Up of Jesus, down, down, Satan. A widow in the Bible, listen carefully, listen up. A widow was given in Mark, is it Mark 11 or 12? She was given, and there were the rich and the great people, and Jesus said he gave more. Now, the point is that a widow ought not to be given, a poor widow. Ought not to be. So it was an oppressive thing that he did for her. Yet Jesus still commended the giving. Giving is never wrong. People can give out of ignorance, so, but giving is never wrong. It's not wrong. In Luke 4, look at the funny thing. In Luke 4, Jesus was talking about honor. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own household and country. Do you know the first example he gave? Giving. Giving was the first example he gave. The widow of Zarephath. That was the first example he gave. Interestingly, the second example he gave was Naaman, the one whose gifts were refused. Look at that. It's a contrast. So, in as much as giving is to honor a preacher, he must not be demanding of it. He gave what you can call a contrast in the same story. Your giving reflects your service. There are some things that reflect your service in the house of God. One of them is your giving. How you will know somebody is not fit for leadership is the way he gives. Barnabas was specified that this guy is a giver. So he shows up later. Paul too. Paul said it. He said, look, it was in a minister's meeting. He said, you know that these hands. You know. So giving is a reflection of true leadership. A man that does not give, let him pray in tongues like Paul. Don't give him any leadership. Because one of the qualities of a bishop is that he must be hospitable. A generous guy. He must be an example. So if everybody gives like you, would we have church? You even forgot what to give. When I ask the offering, now look at the look at all the denominations. This one will not affect me. That's not true worship. Hallelujah. Are you learning something? Your attitude. So you're preaching. It's about the Holy Ghost. Be led by the Spirit. Minister to people by the Spirit. Hope that was clear. Can we have questions?